Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. Aconitine. No. <laughs> have no, you heard of? I have not. Have you heard of aconite? No. Okay. <laughs> so no? it's it's a well known old poison. Aconitine is considered the queen of poisons. Ooh. And so I always imagine the little poison, you know, monarchy to be like arsenic and aconitine. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. I um, like it. I like it. But yeah, nobody's ever heard of it. But it is really common. It's in monkshood and the buttercup family. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it comes from it comes from a plant. It does come from a plant. Yes. We're looking okay. at plant alkaloids again. So Aconitine is the main alkaloid and poison of interest in the flowers of the genus Aconitum, or aconite, and that contains over 250 species of flowers known all over the world. As I said before, there's monkshood. They're also called the devil's helmet, leopard's bane, wolf's bane, as it was called in Shakespeare's time. It's been called the queen of poisons because it has such a long history as a poison. It's longer, actually, probably than recorded history can accurately recall because Pliny the Elder in the first century AD seemed unsure of the origin of the name and said that it was called aconite because of the sharp and craggy rocks on which the flowers paradoxically grow there. And so it's this really Mm. harsh environment. Mm -hmm. But they are lovely flowers. I love monkshood. And then wolfsbane is a specific flower, Aconitum lycotonum, and that was given its name either because the poison was used to bait and kill wolves or because it was used mm. to, to poison the arrows to shoot the wolves. Mm, interesting. Right. And what's even more interesting is that the word toxin itself comes for, from the word for bow. And so it means to me, at least, that the long relationship humans have had with aconite goes all the way mm. back to our first understanding of poisons. Like, sure. poison an arrow, poison it with aconite. Right. So it's unsurprising that it was one of the first drugs that was experimented with as an antidote to other poisons and for which antidotes were sought for accidental ingestion. And it does have use in medicine, more like traditional medicines, as an anti-inflammatory and a cardiotonic. Once again, a a situation of the dose makes the poison. Always. 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 Ovid and Dioscorides both knew well the effects of the plant, especially the rhizome root where the poison concentrates at the highest levels, although the entire thing is poisonous. Aconitine acts by opening the sodium channels persistently, preventing them from closing and paralyzing the nerves. In the heart, this causes a lowering of the blood pressure and eventually respiratory and cardiac arrest. And dermal exposure can actually even lead to cardiac symptoms, including uh, numbness and tingling on the skin. And some historical accounts claimed that men killed their wives by applying it to the mucous membranes of their vulvas. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Not a good time. That's... Yeah, that's fucked up. Right, yeah. And, like, she has to be naked with you, so, like, you got her to, like, trust you, and it's just, it's fucked up. It's fucked up. Yeah, that's fucked up. 
Aconitine is also a neurotoxin, and it primarily acts as an anticholinergic agent, which presents with dizziness, headache, and loss of consciousness, but also convulsions and seizures. And then it prevents with typical anticholinergic gastrointestinal symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, stomach pain, and diarrhea, as well as sweating and salivating. And what acronym does this remind you of that we've brought up before? The sludgies. The sludge acronym, yes. Aconitine also acts like many nerve agents and pesticides mm. do. Alkaloids, man. They're all going to be slightly similar in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, the onset of symptoms, whether it's dermal or oral, it, they present within minutes. It's a very fast-acting alkaloid. Do we know what makes it act so quickly? It's probably just that it's really quickly absorbed into the GI system when it's eaten. And I would assume that there's some amount of, or pretty good amount of, lipophilicity because it'll absorb into your skin really quickly and then start acting there. So that's hmm. my guess. The LD50 of, of aconitine administered orally in mice is 1.8 milligrams per kilogram. For a human, the estimated minimum lethal dose is approximately 1 to 6 milligrams, but 6 is really on the high side. It's probably more like 1 to 2 milligrams. Mm -hmm. And since I haven't gone over this recently, I'll state it here. There are 4 grams of sugar in a single teaspoon. In different you know, substances, they have different densities, and that's going to impact their weight per volume. Sure. But if you're just focusing on the weight of that teaspoon of sugar, we're looking for just about that much aconitine. In the root of the monkshood plant, there's only about 0.322% aconitine by weight. But that still means that not much is needed to induce toxicity in humans, even if you just use the root. And the therapeutic window for aconitine, which, as I said, has been used medicinally, is extremely small. I mean, the, the window between it being medicinal and it being fatal is extremely small. And is that what a therapeutic window is? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if you think about, like, a graph where you have zero at the bottom and then you have your line that goes up just, let's call it just a straight line, you know, that goes up, mm -hmm. you'll have, I don't really feel anything, oh, I feel a little bit better, and then very quickly after that, if the therapeutic window is narrow, I feel terrible. Whereas some drugs, mm -hmm. marijuana, for instance, you could smoke and smoke and smoke. You might not feel great, but you're not going to die. You know, and so you have this huge therapeutic window between like, oh, the tension in my back is gone. And then like, I can see the time knife and I feel terrible and I'm about to have like, a seizure <laughs> or something. You know, it's a huge window. <laughs> right. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. In the late 19th century, aconitine was prescribed transdermally in ointments for pain at around 17.5 milligrams per mil of ointment. And it was prescribed orally for trigeminal neuralgia at about 0.3 to 0.8 milligram doses, which, as I said, is approaching the fatal dose. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. How close it is. <laughs> and so this time period and this use of aconitine brings us to our first case for our episode. Percy Malcolm John was the youngest child of five. And not much is remembered about the John family, except that one of the children, who was a girl, died young. Then, the parents died in 1869, leaving two boys and two girls as wards of the state. The remaining children, upon meeting certain criteria, so like they had to reach a certain age or they had to get married, 
they were going to inherit small sums of money from their parents. And it it did say a small sum of money, and maybe in terms of inheritances it is, but I've never inherited any money, and it seems like they were actually going to get like a pretty decent sum of money mm. from their parents. In 1878, one of the girls was now a woman and married, whereupon she gained the only identity I know her by, and that is Mrs. Lamson. So she doesn't have a first name in this story, she just becomes Mrs. Lamson. Her husband was Dr. George Henry Lamson, and she is basically his property because it's 1878. So her share of the inheritance went directly to George. And the account that I read said that she, like, didn't mind this, either because she was, like, so deeply in love with him, or maybe she didn't have a choice and just was resigned to it. But she's hardly even a character in this story. Like, she's basically just a vehicle for him to get this inheritance yeah Yeah. (laughs) which sucks because she was a real person you know right (laughs) with feelings yeah (laughs) so the year after the lambsons married mrs lambson's elder brother herbert died so mrs lambson inherited the brother's share of the money i think maybe because of the birth order so i think he was the oldest Mm. and she was the second oldest and so then dr lambson got the 479 pounds in india stock and the 269 pounds in consolidated bonds. And this is equal to approximately 76,000 pounds in stocks and bonds today. Oh, wow. Decent sums of money. That's a, that, Yeah, that's not a small amount of money if somebody just showed up and was like, hey, here's $76,000. <laughs> right, and it's like, <laughs> sure, it's tied up in stocks and bonds, but like, it's a good chunk of money. <laughs> that's a good chunk of money, Yeah. So the other John's sister married afterwards, and then she became Mrs. Chapman and then just disappears into the annals of history. We don't hear from her anymore either. She's just gone. Mm. But that's kind of good for her because the rest of the story is terrible, as one would assume. (laughs) In 1880, Dr. Lamson bought a medical practice in Bournemouth, which is a town in the borough of what is now Dorset, England. But his practice was not very successful, and he was running into financial problems so bad he actually had to sell his house. In April of 1881, Dr. Lamson went to the United States, and little is known about this trip, including where he went, why he went, what he did while he was there, and we don't know if Mrs. Lamson accompanied him. But, but you know, when the... he went. He went. He went. He, he did went. his thing. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what he did. And then when he came back on the boat back to England, we know he assisted a surgeon on board, but even despite, like, assisting a surgeon, which you think would be, like, Oh, I'm making a little bit of money while on this ship. He ended up borrowing five pounds from the guy, which is 500 pounds now. So, like, just getting deeper and deeper into debt. And November or October of 1881, he was staying at a hotel because he has nowhere else to stay. He pawned a watch. He tried to cash a check at the American Exchange Office in London for 15 pounds, but they refused him. And so he then decided to cheat a friend in Ventnor out of 20 pounds. But then he left a paper trail for that because he wrote a letter explaining that his check was bad and like blah, 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 whatever. He's just like really bumbling around already. And then he made things worse for himself by committing his first known financial crime in England. He wrote a check for 12 pounds, 10 shillings, and had it cashed at a bank where he didn't have an account. So he basically stole 1,200 pounds from the bank um, in today's money. Yeah. So obviously he's getting desperate. And the whole reason that he's not doing well is because he has a morphine addiction. And so he's like behind the scenes. Right. Trying to pay for his morphine Mm -hmm. addiction. Gotcha. On December 1st, 1881, he wrote to his 18-year-old brother-in-law, Percy John, 
saying that he meant to visit him that day but was delayed. The next day, he was going to leave for Paris, but he could stop by for a few minutes before he caught his train. So Percy was studying at the Blenheim House School in Wimbledon, where he was also being cared for because he had a severe curvature in his spine that actually caused Mm. a paralysis of his lower limbs. Percy was the only remaining sibling still set to inherit money from his family's estate because his two sisters had been married, his older brother died, so he's the last one who still hasn't gotten Mm. his money. And he was about to get 3,000 pounds in 1881 money. So oh, he, wow. Yeah, he was going to get 300,000 pounds in 2023 money. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Substantial. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Other than the paralysis, though, he's, he's totally fine. He's healthy. But Dr. Lamson, being a doctor and his brother-in-law, took an interest in his well-being. And so he would check in on him at school, like, pretty frequently or like let him stay at home when dude had a house that percy could stay in Mm -hmm. so none of this is unusual it's not unusual for him to be like hey i'm gonna drop by it's not unusual to be like oh i was going to drop by but i got caught up that's whatever except that everything he said in that letter were lies (laughs) and everything he said to his friends to the following day (laughs) were they were all lies oh yeah okay So on December 2nd, Lamson told a Mr. Tullock, I don't know who this person is, he's just here and then he's gone, but he told him that Percy was bad and getting worse, which is not true, Percy's fine, and he said that he had been told not to take a certain train to visit Percy because there was a bad boat running, and I don't know, I don't know what that has to what do that with means. anything. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Um... <laughs> And I also don't know why he told it to Mr. Tullock, who's here for this alibi and then gone, but I think it was just to create an alibi. Like, oh, I could Mm. not see Percy because of this boat. And Mm -hmm. Mr. Tullock's like, okay, why are you telling me this? Yeah, right. (laughs) Sir, this is a Wendy's. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So... Lamson didn't make it to Bloomheim School until December 3rd at around 7 p.m., And at that time, Lamson spoke with Percy and with Mr. Bedbrook, who was the director of the school. And both Mr. Bedbrook and Percy told the doctor that he looked thinner. Like, he's not looking good right now. And they both Mm -hmm. noticed it. Mm -hmm. And then Bedbrook offered Lamson some sherry while they're all sitting down and talking. And when it was brought in, Lamson said he always took sugar with sherry to counteract the alcohol. And Bedbrook, like myself thought that sugar would have the opposite effect. Like, it's going to make you feel worse. It's not going to make that alcohol go away. Right. He was like, that's weird. But he was like, whatever. okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Whatever. (laughs) So he sent for the sugar. It gets delivered by the staff. And then Mr. And Dr. Lamson, he actually does add it to his wine. And then he brings out this pre-cut Dundee cake from a black handbag and some sweets, like some crystallized fruit or whatever, for Percy, Bedbrook, and himself, and they all share. They all have some cake, and they all have some sweets. And it's just this nice little cordial time. And then after they had some cake, Lamson told Bedbrook that while in America, he had not forgotten him. And he brought some capsules to help give the boys at school medicine. So just little gelatin capsules. I guess they're like the mm-hmm. new thing in medicine at this time. And so then to show him how these work... He opens it up, he puts the caster sugar in, and then he 
says to Bedbrook that the pills had to be shaken so that the medicine would go to the bottom. And I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. But so he shakes it and he's like, you got to shake it. And then he hands the per- pill to Percy and then was like, here, you're good at pills. Taking this to show Bedbrook how easy it is. Just take this sugar pill. And so he takes it and he's like, see, so easy. You can give it to all the boys. And then five minutes later at around 7.20, Lamson suddenly says he has to leave to catch the train to Paris. And Bedbrook seemed to know the exact schedule of the trains and agreed that if he was going to leave that evening and get to Paris, he did need to go soon because he'd already missed the only other train out and to Paris that night. But he didn't actually need to leave like right away because the station was only a couple minutes away. He's like, you don't have to leave like now. Like you can stay for like a now, now. Longer. Yeah. Yeah. But Lamson was super anxious to get going and left immediately. And then on the way out, he, like, pulls Bedbrook aside and he's like, I don't think Percy's going to last much longer. And, like, (laughs) 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 yeah, yeah. And, like, a little bit, a little bit. And, like, Bedbrook had heard him say this before. And was always like, I don't know why you think that. Percy's fine. Like, his curvature has done all it's going to do to him. He's fine. But he's like, whatever. You're allowed to think that. Good luck catching your train to Paris. And so they part ways. And then about 15 or 20 minutes after Lamson left, Bedbrook, like, he goes and does whatever else in the school. And Percy is, I think he has to stay in the room because the school is highly inaccessible for somebody who uses a wheelchair and he has to be carried everywhere Mm. because it's all stairs. So he's Mm -hmm. kind of like confined to the room that he's in because he doesn't have his wheelchair with him sure so he comes in to check on percy and percy says he has heartburn now and he's not feeling very well and then he's like you know actually i feel just as bad as the time i visited my sister this last august and lamson was there my brother-in-law was there and he gave me a quinine pill and i kind of felt like this after i took that pill and so red book was like that's weird I don't know what to tell you. Why don't you go lay down? And so he has another student carry Percy upstairs. But on the way up, Percy vomits. So he's starting to get worse. Mm. And so there are some people that stay with him to check on him. But Bedbrook goes and he does whatever because he's the director. He's not a nurse. Right. And so this is like between eight and nine. And Percy continues to just get worse and worse and worse. And it's just puking everywhere just absolutely Mm. everywhere when bedbrook checks on him about an hour and a half later like that's what he recalls he's like it's on the floor it's in the water closet it's just everywhere he's not doing Mm. good and there was nothing that the matron or the junior master who were there with him could really do to help him and he said he was in terrible pain he was convulsing so violently they had to physically hold him down so that he wouldn't like fuck yeah like hit his head or something And then he said he felt like his throat was closing up and his skin was being drawn up, which I don't know what that means, but it sounds awful. So then they call in the doctors. They called in doctors Barry and Little, and they gave him some water for a sore throat. And pretty quickly were like, you seem like you've been poisoned with some sort of vegetable poison. Like, just immediately upon looking at the situation, that was their assessment. And, like... Was there something that made them draw this conclusion so quickly? Like, or was it just something about his symptoms? I think it was just his symptoms. I think it was the violent vomiting, the convulsions. the, and the convul- the, yeah. Yeah, the tightness in the throat. And so neither of them had ever seen the specific poison at work. I don't know if they'd ever actually been witness to a poison at work. 
but it was just so you know textbook pronounced yeah yeah that they were like this seems like a vegetable poison gotcha and you know considering everything that had happened and the weirdness with lambs and they had a pretty obvious suspect once they determined it was a vegetable poisoning yeah but beyond (laughs) that there was nothing they could do because they they were like we don't know what poison it is we don't know how much it was and so they were really just focused on like taking care of his pain and making him more comfortable Mm -hmm. and so they kept giving him injections of morphine and felt until he fell into a coma and then he just never woke up Mm. so at 11 30 on december 2nd 1881 percy malcolm john died and this was just two weeks short of his 19th birthday that's tragic. Now, because they already assumed it was a poisoning, immediately everybody who was there began to collect what they were looking at as evidence. And okay, so, this is good. This isn't normal. the normal bumbling that we see. No, it's extremely um, proactive. <laughs> love it. I'm like, yeah, like, this is... This is noteworthy. Yes. This is noteworthy for this show. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But so they put some of the vomit into a bottle to keep it for testing. Like, that's what they're thinking is, like, we're going to need this mm-hmm. to test it. So they put it into a bottle mm-hmm. for testing. And then Bedbrook himself went to the police the next day. And along with that bottle, he gave them, like, an envelope of money that had been brought to Percy, the, the empty capsules that Lamson had brought, another box of, like, quinine pills that had Lamson's practice on it, you know, because he had had that conversation with Percy. He's mm-hmm. like, maybe it's these quinine pills. And then he also brought the cake, the sweets, some of the caster sugar that was from his own school, and then the whole bottle of wine. Just like, here you go. Here's everything you could possibly test. All the things. Yeah, yeah. And then an autopsy was performed, but they didn't find anything of interest there. Mm. Nothing, anyhow, that showed any, like, apparent reason for Percy's death. Like, the stomach showed signs of, like, congestion. And that supported the idea that it was a vegetable poison because there was, you know, irritation there and it was congested mm-hmm. like like any poison would do, any vegetable poison. So they were like, yeah, we still think that it's that, but we still don't know exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. And apparently Lamson actually did go to Paris when he said he was going to Paris. That wasn't just like a story he made up. Oh, okay. So he goes to Paris and there it seems he unexpectedly, oh my gosh, learns that he's been named in connection with Percy's death. (laughs) And so he returns to London somewhat unexpectedly with Mrs. Lamson. I don't know if she went with him to Paris or not. I kind of don't think so. But she does show up with him at Scotland Yard regarding the case to be like, Mm. here I am. I'm, you know, showing my hand. I've got nothing to hide. But while at the station, they charged him with Percy's death and then put him into custody at the Old Bailey. And then got right to it. They did. They were like, you know, you're just because you turned yourself mm-hmm. in doesn't mean we don't think it was you. So. Yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't mean like, oh, yep, couldn't be him. Right. Couldn't be him. So he stays in the Old Bailey for three months. And then the trial began there on March 8th, 1882. Obviously, there was little doubt as to who killed Percy. The main difficulty for the prosecution and the scientists supporting the prosecution was determining what was used to kill Percy. And that's actually why Lamson came back and surrendered himself, is because he didn't think that the poison could be pinned down medically or detected toxicologically. Mm. And this was based on what he'd been told about poisons during his time in medical school. And 
in a way, he was right. I mean, we wouldn't be talking about it if he was completely right. He would have gotten away with it, probably. Or, you know, they wouldn't have figured out what the mm-hmm, poison was. Mm-hmm. But he he wasn't completely wrong because none of the doctors involved had experience with vegetable poisons. And none of them had experience with aconitine except for one guy in this whole trial who had some experience with it. Hmm. And refresh my memory, where are we... As far as things are considered as the point in history for the toxicological field. Well, we're not doing too bad. I mean, it is the late 19th century. And so we already have a number of things we can test for. Like, we can already test for arsenic. That's been around Mm -hmm. as a um, pretty reliable test for about 50 years. But, you know, the trial of Holly Crippen is still another 30 years away. And so... So being used in court right, as and, an expert, gotcha. Yeah, and so we, we know that plant alkaloids and their toxicity, like we know that they exist in plants, we know what they can do. We can't extract all of them individually yet. We do have some tests to extract each of them individually, but that's still a little more difficult because it's like we can separate things into acids and bases, and that's kind of where we've got it. And they still believe in the cadaveric alkaloids that came up in the Holly Crippen trial. And they were like, we're kind of moving away from that. We don't believe that anymore. But that came up in the transcripts for this trial where they had to really make a point of saying that there were no cadaveric alkaloids that had been Mm. um, established yet because Percy's body hadn't started decomposing yet when they started doing analysis. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So... The first clues that they got as to what poison exactly this was came from just good old-fashioned detective work. That's still really what we're relying on at this point. Love to see it. Love <laughs> to see it. They, they're they really on top of it. For this one, yeah. They're really on yeah, top of it. Yeah, they're really on top of it. I'm loving it. <laughs> so a local chemist, pharmacist, he recalled assisting Lamson on November 11th in purchasing morphine and atropine. He had also wanted digitaline. But it wasn't pure enough. Like, the guy looked at his bottle and was like, it's a little yellow. Are you sure you want digitaline? And Lamson was like, no, I'll come back if it's more pure. Like, you have another batch in a couple days. So sometime after November 20th, he came back and he didn't get the digitaline. But he did purchase 0.06 grams of aconitine, which is about a grain of aconitine. And that's how they're measuring it, which is why it's such a weird 0.06 number. Mm -hmm. And then a different chemist also sold Lamson about 0.13 grams of aconitine four days later on November 24th. And both of these chemists verified his credentials in the medical directory. So also in terms of where we are toxicologically, but with our poison safety, you have to sign the book when you go to the chemist. And now we're at a point where you have to be a doctor in order to get certain things and sign that you're a doctor. Okay. So. They look him up in their directory. They're like, you are a doctor. You're allowed to buy this. Mm -hmm. And then following this line of investigation, you know, they'd already found these two chemists. They determined that Lamson also purchased another 0.06 grams of aconitine from a different chemist in August prior to the visit that Percy made when he became ill the first time. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So probably not quite, quite... Quinine? 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 Yeah. (laughs) Quinine? Probably not quinine. Probably not. (laughs) So the only doctor we have on this trial who's experienced in alkaloid poisons was Dr. Thomas Stevenson. And he did the analysis on the vomit that was collected 
using techniques that really haven't changed significantly in 150 years, except for hmm. <laughs> this, this wasn't a surprise to me, but I was just like, you fucking organic chemists. After he gets his final fraction, like he, he basically went through all the steps I would have gone through to do the same extraction at the coroner's office and he gets his alkaloid extraction. But then when he gets it, he dips his finger into it and then places some on the tip of his tongue. <laughs> Why? <laughs> because this Why? is what chemists were like. <laughs> I, <laughs> I had an organic chemistry professor who... I don't remember why we were talking about it, but it was something along these lines. And one of my, you know, peers was like, you would be one of the guys that would taste the chemicals, wouldn't you? And my professor goes, hell yeah, I would. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Ha you've never watched uh, Outlander, have you? Mm -mm. There's a scene in like the third season or something where she like has a patient she suspects has diabetes and she's like, She's from the future, and so she's, you know, got the know-how on diabetes. And mm -hmm. so she smells the urine, but then she tastes it to taste that it's sweet. And I was just like, <laughs> but it's what people yep. did. They, I yeah. know. I get, yeah, I, sure. So what happened when he put it on his tongue? Well, he noticed that it created a faint but distinctive sensation that he'd felt before, because this is how he works. <laughs> it felt like a hot iron was being applied to his tongue. And it felt like his throat was starting oh. to close up just from like dabbing this extract on his tongue. Oh, wow. And so he knew that this was a sensation produced by a conatine. And so given this response, Dr. Stevenson chose next to analyze Percy's urine because he knew that not much aconitine is needed to kill an individual. And so if a small amount was used, it might be found in the vomit, you know, and mm -hmm. he did find it there. But it would be unlikely to be found in detectable levels anywhere except the urine where, it, you know, we metabolize it and then we collect it. And it kind of just stays there until we pee. So he does the alkaloid extraction on the urine, does the same thing, and it produces the same effects. And so he's like, I'm I'm pretty sure I'm on the right path here. And so then Stevenson did the next most empirical test he was capable of at this time. He took a mouse and he took a portion of the alkaloid extract from the urine and he injected the mouse with that extract. Mm -hmm. And then he injected another mouse with aconitine from his lab. So that's like, you know, his sample and his control. And then he mm -hmm. injected a third mouse with a comparable placebo to make sure it's not just the effects of the tartaric acid that you end up with it in. Okay. Okay. So the third mouse had nothing happen, but the first two had extremely similar symptoms. And obviously this is not how we would do things now and compare symptoms, but back sure. then... But like, back then that's pretty good science. It's like... pretty good. Yeah. And yeah. so now we have to ask, where did the aconitine come from? Because Dr. Lamson really put on a show when he was at the school. The entire time that Lamson and Percy were together, they were in the presence of Mr. Bedbrook. And Mr. Bedbrook and Lamson both ate the cake and drank the wine that Percy ate and drank. And both of them were fine. So where in the hell did the aconitine come from? And I want to know what you think happened. I mean, it has to be, like you said, they already, they shared the same food and drink. Like, mm -hmm. it has to be the pill. 
Mm-hmm. Somehow, like it has to be the pill somehow. Right. Yeah. He's How? not that. He's not that good of a magician, right? <laughs> no, like, no. Like, but so, how? Yes. I think most of us are thinking, yes, it was in the pill. Like, that just seems so obvious. You're not hiding in plain sight. You're just being bumbling. And yes. But as it turns out, the poison was in two places. So mm. it was in this supposedly empty capsule. You know, he mm-hmm. put some in the capsule and then shook it. I still don't know why he shook it. Like, he was just making a show out of it. And for whatever reason, he did like he had a couple capsules that he doctored so he could just grab one that had a conatine in it and then put the sugar in it and give it to Percy. But then like the capsules that he left behind as his gift to Bedbrook were also doctored. And so no. it's like Yeah, and so like you're leaving behind capsules that we can just test to see what the fuck well, you did. Yeah, and it's like like we already knew it was you, but now it's like yeah well and imagine if we if if we were as dumb as lamson thinks that we are these people were as dumb and they like were like oh we have no idea what happened or if they weren't able to like find the econotine because he doesn't think that they can and then they use the capsules because they need to use them for another student and then they kill another student like exactly like (laughs) yeah So that's the obvious one. But the second place was that the aconitine actually was in the cake that came. Oh, no. Yeah, it came pre-cut. And one of the pieces had raisins because Dundee cake is like a fruit cake. So it had raisins okay. that were impregnated with aconitine. Mm, yeah. And so did he just like try to make sure that Percy got that piece? Percy got that piece. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And what I think happened is that Lamson already failed once with the doctored pills in August. And so he decided that he needed the cake to also be poisoned. And like, it seems like if he was smart, he would have just poisoned the raisins, you know, because who's going to test individual raisins? Like, it's really serendipitous that they were able to get the raisin out of Percy's vomit and then test that specifically and be like, oh, shit, it was doctored, you know? Right. Because that is what they did. But, like, the pills just seem like overkill at that point. Like, you're mm-hmm. going to have the pills and the cake. Like, and one or the, the cake, other. Like, exactly. Like, we don't need both, especially with something as poisonous as it is. Yeah, yeah. Aconitine like, is you so don't evil. Need, you don't need both. No. You don't no. need both. It would have been way less obvious if he would have just done it in the cake. But doing the whole show of the pill was like, dude. I know. Well, and and especially, like, doing the show of the pill, then being like, I don't think Percy's going to be around for much longer. <laughs> you, you don't and think so. And then leave evidence behind, like, come on. And then yeah. just go on his way, like, they're never going to catch me. I'll turn myself in. Like, bro. <laughs> This guy's, like, on some next-level delusions. Yeah, yeah, for real. Yeah. So none of the analyses that Stevenson did were performed quantitatively, although Stevenson claimed he could quantify the amount. I don't think he actually could with any certainty. So we really just have a lot of qualifiable, almost circumstantial evidence, right? But it's pretty damning stuff. And the most damning thing that they found was an entry in one of Lamson's notebooks that described exactly the symptoms suffered by Percy as those that were typical of aconitine poisoning. Wow. (laughs) Because we needed, I mean, we did need a little more. Let's just, 
He's like, just in case you guys didn't have this. Yeah, exactly. Like, let me paint my hands for you and then hand you the brush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So after five days of testimony, Dr. Lanson was found guilty and sentenced to death. And he was hanged on April 28th, 1882 at the Wandsworth Prison. Hmm. And the Lamson case is considered to be the first reported case of homicide using aconitine, which is pretty, I mean, miraculous almost, you know, considering because how of long... how long it's been around. Yeah. yeah. But this was not the last homicide by aconitine. The next that happened after that was January 28th, 2009. When 39-year-old Lockvinder Lucky Chima and his 19-year-old fiance Gurjeet Chung were admitted to West Middlesex Hospital after becoming violently ill at Chima's home in Feltham, West London. Two hours before Chima called for help, the couple ate some leftover curry for dinner. His symptoms began 10 minutes after he finished eating a second portion. This included pins and needles in his mouth and then limbs, Tunnel vision, weakness, sweating, abdominal pain. Chung recalled, Everything was going dark. I began to feel dizzy. I was unable to stand up. My tummy was hurting. And that Chima said to her, I am not feeling well. My face has become, become numb, and when I touch it, I cannot feel it. So before he lost the ability to do so, he called an ambulance and told them, Someone put poison in our food. She is my ex-girlfriend. So the ex okay, well, at least we know where to look. Hey, right? <laughs> <laughs> the ex-girlfriend in question was 44-year-old Lakvir Singh, with whom Chima had been having an affair for 16 years. Mm. Singh herself, mother of three, was also married to a man living elsewhere overseas and being treated for cancer. And according to Singh, Chima had talked her out of divorcing him. So they just have this long-standing love affair. And after yeah, that's not like that's not just some some affair. That's yeah, a pretty yeah. That's pretty long, like right. Pretty long affair. Yeah. <laughs> and after such a long affair, Chima finally wanted to settle down and start a family, but he didn't want to do it with Singh. Oh. Yeah. According to her, Chima wanted Singh for sex, but he wanted another woman, the much younger Gurjeet Chung, to bear his children. And Singh didn't think that Chima could possibly be that serious about this new woman. He'd only known her for a few months, and the two of them, as we said, had a long history together. So after he tells her, like, I'm going to be in this arranged marriage, it's over between the two of us, she continues to text him love messages and try to talk him out of marrying Chung. But in November of 2008, the new couple officially announced their engagement, and Chima actually broke it off with saying was like we can't do this anymore and so then her text messages became abusive and she told him she was gonna burn down his house because he broke her heart oh, no yeah she's already diving off the deep end yeah and then she went to india for three weeks and you know she could have had a good time there she could have just had a, a eat pray great, love yeah eat pray yeah. love vacation but no 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 mm. while she was there singh obtained indian aconite Aconitum ferox, the roots of which are used to create bish, a traditional medicine there that is responsible for the much more common aconitine poisonings in Asia. 
And so are we talking about accidental poisonings due to the dose or is it because it was available as a medication or used in intentional poisonings? I mean, it might depend on the reporting there, but it really does seem like it's just dose dependent. So people mm-hmm. are trying to use it the way that it's intended as a medicine and mm-hmm. they're just using too much. Gotcha. A week after Singh returned in December, Chima was hospitalized. Singh stayed by his bedside the whole time, and he was discharged after a week without doctors ever discovering what caused his illness. Chima tried again to end things with Singh, but she wouldn't relent, and things got worse over Christmas. Chung got in the middle of things and told Singh not to interfere in her relationship with Chima and to forget what Singh and Chima had in the past. But Singh told Chung she couldn't deny the feelings that she had, and it's just... You know, who are you? Yeah, it's so messy. It's so messy. And, you know, obviously nothing is dissuading Singh. And Chima and Chung are just trying to go on, like, as if Singh doesn't exist, really. And they set Mm -hmm. their wedding date for Valentine's Day 2008. But Singh, during this time, decides if she can't get things the way she wants them by asking, she's just going to force them to go her way. So on the morning of January 28th, Singh went to Chima's house, knowing he would be at work, and was seen rummaging around in the fridge by his roommates. And I don't know, maybe they just didn't want to get in the middle of this whole love triangle thing. Right, like, of why is your, <laughs> why is your mistress, like, in, in, our the, fridge. in your fridge? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, they just look and just see that and back away. Like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, not my yeah. circus, not, not my, my monkeys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That night, exactly. when, that night when the two of them were losing consciousness in the ambulance, Chung tried to reach out for Chima's hand, but could not because the paralysis in her limbs prevented her from doing so. She never got a chance to hold his hand again or say goodbye because she was placed in a medically induced coma for two days upon arrival to the hospital, and Chima died two hours after they arrived. Mm. Both of them were given antiemetics and experienced abnormal heartbeat, tachycardia, and hypotension, and it was clear to hospital staff that there must have been a poison at work, given that both of them were presenting with similar and sudden symptoms, but they didn't know which poison it was. All they could do to try to save Chung's life without knowing what was in her system was to treat her with infusions of magnesium sulfate and amiodarone to treat her potential electrolyte imbalance from the vomiting and to slow the nerve impulses in the heart. And then they pumped her stomach. So they're basically just doing, you know, the, the basic I've been poisoned regimen. Mm, mm-hmm. Differential diagnosis included arsenic and cardiac glycosides like digoxin and oleandrin. Also, they considered nicotine, atropine, or emetine. A lot of our heavy hitters are in this possibility. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the curry was analyzed via LCMS that aconitine was confirmed as the causative agent. Although for the herbal mixture used by Singh, the analyte with the greatest concentration was pseudoaconitine, which is similar to but even more potent than aconitine in terms of the sodium channel blocks and cardiotoxicity. In either case, there is no specific antidote for aconitine poisoning. So with this pseudo-aconitine, is this mm-hmm. another analogs type of thing with like with the fentanyl, or mm. does it mean that it was created in a lab? No, no. So it's it's natural. It's just another alkaloid that's found in aconite, 
and it's found in really high levels in the Indian aconite. But researchers okay. just, they gave it a dumb name. It's also called napoline. So, I mean, okay. maybe because it's so similar, like, compared to other alkaloids, it's just a little bit more similar to aconitine, but mm. it's just another alkaloid. Gotcha. For Miss Chung, it is likely that she was given supportive care, including atropine for the brachycardia, and her blood pressure was likely monitored. But her miraculous survival can mostly be attributed to the smaller dose she received by eating less of the curry. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Despite the fact that herbal drugs matching the profile of the poison in the curry were found in Miss Singh's coat pockets and purse, Miss Singh insisted that she was not responsible for the death, and it was actually her brother-in-law, because Mr. Chima's sister was Miss Singh's husband's brother's wife. If you just want to let that one simmer for that, a second. Okay, that one's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. yeah i think i got it but yeah mm -hmm. I, I was just sure. sitting in the basement trying to like figure out picture what all the people family tree looks like and the doctor yeah. came down and he asked me a question and i was like i don't i don't know what you just said i'm trying to figure I can't. this out <laughs> I can't. yeah but so she said that her brother-in-law killed chima because he was angered about the affair and so Chima was killed in an honor killing because they were somehow related. That was what she okay. said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But why was it in your pockets and purse then, Miss Singh? Yeah. Like, yeah. anyhow. So the jury of the Old Bailey absolutely did not buy this. They didn't buy this as much as the jury 100 years prior didn't believe Lamson's defense. Yeah. <laughs> so Singh was cleared of the charge of poisoning for the December 2008 incident, but she was found guilty of grievous bodily harm to Chung with intent to kill. Um, and so that means that she wasn't charged with attempted murder of Chung. Okay. But for the grievous bodily harm and the murder of Lucky Chima, Singh was sentenced to life in prison in 2010 with a minimum sentence of 23 years. Now, as was mentioned during her trial, poisoning with aconitine is extremely rare, despite how toxic the plant is and, you know, frankly, how widely available it is. Hmm. These two cases were the first and second in the UK as far as homicidal poisonings go, and they're usually talked about together. In 2010, when the Chima case was making headlines, everybody was also referencing the Lamson case. Mm -hmm. But there aren't that many other known murder cases worldwide. Mostly the poisonings with aconite are accidental from misused traditional medicine or suicides. It's pretty common as a suicidal agent. But... Oh, no. Right. But that sounds like such a rough way to go. It does. It does. And that was going to be my point, is that, like, I don't recommend... We don't recommend murder to solve your problems here on the show, obviously. Obviously. But we also don't recommend suicide to solve your problems, and especially not with aconitine, because... We already know how much puking and convulsing and, you know, tunnel vision and all that you go through. But the worst part is you are fully mentally present the entire time that it's happening. You, do, you yeah. don't, like, black out. And that's no, why... thank you. Right. And that's why in Singh and Percy, or no, Chima and Percy, were both put into medically induced comas because it was the most, like, humane thing that doctors could do. That you could right yeah. to treat like as part of treatment for it right yeah yeah it is a horrible way to go it's really really awful mm. 
but but I also don't recommend poisoning anybody with it, despite how easy it might be to get your hands on some of it if you really want to bumble your way through your problems like that, is because it's not difficult to determine that aconitine is the poison based on symptoms. I mean, they were able mm-hmm. to do it in 1882, you know? Right. They can um, definitely do it now. <laughs> they can do it now. And I mean, they, sure, they yeah. went through a whole list of things, but they were able to be like, well, no, it's it can't be that because it doesn't show up like this, you know? So they can figure out what it is based on your symptoms, and it can be tested for via LCMS. Like, it's not on a typical panel, but it can be tested for at lower concentrations even than, like, some other instrumentation we have. So even if it does decompose in the body, which it does, it rapidly decomposes, Mm -hmm. we could still probably find it. And also we're going to have the history of somebody convulsing and having all the sludge symptoms and all that, so... So don't do it. Just look at monks' hoods because they're pretty and solve your problems in And enjoy way. that. Yeah. <laughs> Simple as that. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Venus Danico. Stay safe and remember, the dose makes the poison. 